you know how life is full of mountaintops and valleys. And I believe this chapter, chapter 12, has some mountaintops and valleys in it. And we'll, we'll read that together in a minute. I want to I want to start uh, as we move into chapter 12 with a couple questions. And this is kind of a tough question. You know, I think you could give it a quick, easy answer. But if you really contemplate it, the question is this. Do you believe that God is ultimately in control of everything? Do you believe that God is ultimately in control of everything? Do you believe he's in control of the state of our country right now, that he's in control of that? The state of your family? That he's in control of your health or whatever might be going on in your body right now, this very moment even, that he's in control of that? Uh, In in your job, what's going to happen in your job, in your finances? Do you believe that God is ultimately in control of all of those things, of everything? that when we'll talk about it in a minute, that he is sovereign over everything. I think most of us are, especially when we're sitting in church on a Sunday morning, would be yes, and I think we do truly believe that to a degree. But then my next question would be this. Do you trust God and his control? Do you trust God's control in your life? Do you trust him to be the one to run everything? And then, if, if so, how do you show that? How do you show that you trust God's control on a daily basis? Do, does your life show that you absolutely, completely trust that God is in control? Or maybe you're saying, well, I can see where I trust Him mostly, but there's a couple things. And, and so how do you grow into trusting God more? And so I think we're going to see that today in the passage. We're going to see... In chapter 11, God's sovereignty is on display big time in chapter 12. And if you think about the word sovereign, it's kind of a bible Old English word. We use the word sovereign, but really it has the word reign in it. And it has the idea of lordship or kingship or rulership. And so the idea of sovereign means that he is the supreme authority. And do we believe that? And how do we show that? And today, that's what we're going to talk about. Some ways to show that we believe that God is in control. And you may be going, well, I'm not sure I do believe he's in control. Then we're going to talk about some ways that you can take these and apply them to ways to grow to trust that he's in control. And I want to kind of hit an elephant in the room. Because as we talk about this, you know, we could just dive into some big, huge philosophical debate going, well, what about free will? And what about, I get that, it's a valid thing to, to wrestle with. And I'll say this, is God sovereign? Yes. Do we have free will? Yes. Working out the details, we could argue about that till, uh, till eternity passes probably, but I, I would say it like this. God gives us free will to operate within his big plan. He gives us the free will to do that. And he will also use everything for his purposes. Does that make sense? Guess if you want to put it real bluntly, your free will is never going to override God's plan, big picture plan. You may have free will and may make a mess of your life. And you have no right to say, well, that was part of God's plan. It's what God wanted me to do. Not necessarily. We have free will and there are consequences, but he will take those things and fit them like a puzzle piece into the big design of his plan. So that doesn't mean that he's necessary, 
necessarily planning uh, negative things for you. Make sense? I feel like we had to at least address that, and then, you know, there's some big-brained people that would probably like to just argue about that and discuss it and would probably not get anywhere today on that. But yes, God is sovereign. Yes, we have free will. God works all those things together according to his purposes. And he has a plan, and it's unfolding. So I'm going to pray one more time, and then we'll dive through this passage. We're going to read through it. I'll make some comments, and we'll, we'll go from there. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your son. I thank you for this book of Acts and seeing how things started out for the early church. I thank you for the ways that it does parallel our lives and the things that we can see to apply for ourselves. Father, I feel like as I ask these questions and talk about your supremacy and your sovereignty, one, it's convicting, and two, I feel like it's over my head, God. I genuinely, I can't wrap my mind around the details of it. And I pray that as we go through this passage today that you would help it to become very practical to us and that it would become very encouraging and uplifting and edifying today as we go through this, despite the fact that it's something that we probably can't perfectly wrap our heads around. We love you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. (coughs) I'm going to go ahead and read through the passage Uh, together and make some comments. So about that time, Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. And I'm not going to take this much time on every single sentence, but let me just say that. So the church is going good. (laughs) Some of you know me better and you're like, yeah, you just might do that. But (laughs) the reality is, the the reality is the church was going good. It was growing. If you read through up to this point, you'll see the church was growing. People, they were being multiplied. This is going on. But about that time, Herod Agrippa began to persecute some of the believers in the church. And if you hear that name Herod, when you read the name Herod, there are a few different Herods. There was the Herod that was alive when Christ was born, you remember, and he wanted to have all the babies executed in the area just to make sure. There was another, so he was kind of the granddaddy. Of, uh, then there was another Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. And then we have Herod Agrippa here. So the bottom line is when you read Herod in the New Testament, you want to kind of think murderous, troublemaking person. It's not one of those like, I'm not sure about this guy. If you read Herod, it may not be the Herod you're thinking of, but he's probably involved with the same thing. They're all, they're all related. Uh, as you notice, people aren't naming their kids Herod these days. Like Herod just has a stigma to it, and we can, we can roll with that stigma here. He's persecuting believers. And... Uh, He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with the sword. So this is the first of the 12 that's killed. And so we've seen some of them be arrested. We've seen other things. But this is the first of the 12 that is killed. And when Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he he also arrested Peter. This took place during the Passover celebration. So during that time, uh, Herod was a Jew, for all intents and purposes, we'll say that we could get into a bunch of details about that, but the Jews were not necessarily happy with the church, and particularly that they were opening that up to Gentiles. So as the Jews are selling, celebrating Passover, Herod is kind of wanting to make his mark and pull a political move here, and part of what he, his way of doing that is all start persecuting some of these new believers, some of these new church people that have kind of infiltrated the Jewish ways. And so that's what he's doing. 
So he also arrested Peter. He's not arresting Peter just to make a point. My, as we read through the passage, I believe it's clear he had the same fate mapped out for Peter as well as he did for James. And so he then imprisoned him, placing him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each, so 16 soldiers. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. The night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two, two chains between two soldiers. It's kind of interesting. Peter, we see him sleeping in the Garden uh, of Gethsemane. Here we see him arrested, probably thinking, you know, my buddy James uh, was just executed recently, and here I am to go on trial, and he's sawing logs. I don't know if the guy was a heavy sleeper. I don't know if he was so at peace in his heart about what was going on and entrusting himself to God, but he's sleeping, and it seems as though he's sleeping heavy here. It says uh, he was fast asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers, Others stood at the prison gate. Suddenly, there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, Quick, get up. So it didn't kind of like, Peter, wake up. Peter, it sounds like he had to kind of like give him a, a jab to wake him up. Um, that's why he struck him, not to be mean. Wasn't pulling a prank on him. But uh, he was fast asleep. And the chains fell off his wrist. Then the angel told him, Get dressed and put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel. But all the time he thought it was a vision. And if you remember, this would make a lot of sense because just a few chapters earlier, he had had the vision of the, I called it the picnic, tape, uh, picnic blanket coming down, but the big blanket with all the food. And so he had had visions before, and he's thinking this is a vision. He didn't realize it was actually happening. They passed the first and second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city, and this opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street, and then the angel suddenly left him. Peter finally came to his senses. It's really true, he said. And I think it's interesting here, and hopefully this will help make sense as we get into some of the details here. But he was surprised himself that at his release. I think he had kind of resolved himself to being executed. He said, it really is true. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door in the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone Peter's standing at the door. I mean, that's kind of, to us, that's a little comical, right? You know, he's, he's just got out of prison. I'm not sure he was banging on the door. It's me, Peter, you know, but he's probably like, hey. And, and then she comes in. And doesn't say, hey, come on in. Oh, my goodness, we're so glad to see you. We were just praying for you. Bolts and goes to tell everybody. And they said, you're out of your mind. And she insisted, it must be his angel. So they're in there having this debate and this kind of like higher philosophical thing. Like, well, maybe, uh, maybe you're having some mental health issues right now. And she's like, no, I saw it. And they're like, 
someone else probably piped up like, maybe it was his angel, you know? Maybe he was executed already in his angel, or they're having these weird ideas or concepts, or maybe it was his guardian angel. Who knows what they were actually doing? Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. <laughs> when they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned for them. Check that out. They were amazed. He motioned for them to quiet down and told them how the Lord had let him out of prison. <clears throat> Tell James and the other brothers what had happened, he said, and then he went to another place. At dawn, there was a great commotion among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him. When he couldn't be found, Herod interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death. Afterward, Herod left Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while. Possibly he left there because he was so embarrassed that he had had this captive and he's going to make this big public execution. And, he, and kind of there in Judea and going, okay, not so popular with Jean, so I'm going to head back to this really Roman place of Caesarea you know, and kind of just let this blow over, as they say nowadays, let this new cycle pass, you know, and we'll move into to what's next. Now, Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, so they sent a delegation to make peace with him because their cities were dependent on Herod's country for food. The delegates won the support of Blastus, which I think that is kind of a cool name. It would be a cool pet name, at least. They won the support of Blastus, Herod's personal assistant, and an appointment with Herod was granted. When the day arrived, Herod put on his royal robes, sat on his throne, and made a speech to them. The people gave him a great ovation, shouting, It's the voice of a god, not a man. And so these people need food. Uh, they, they talk to Blastus. Blastus talks to Herod. Herod comes in, in, in to kind of like save the day. And there's a historian that was alive around this time, and he spoke of it named Josephus. Many of you have probably heard of him. And he, it says that it, when uh, Herod walked up, he had on a great silver robe that was glistening in the sun. So it looked like, uh, and this is historical information. It's not in the Bible, but it was historical information from the time. That when he stood up there and gave his speech and the sun was hitting him, it was like there was this big beaming uh, light coming from him as and he was speaking these words uh, what said what happened is all the people started saying it's the voice of a god not of a man and so as Herod is saying this instantly an angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness because he accepted the peace, people's worship instead of giving glory to God so he was consumed with worms and died Josephus also writes about that kind of that period of time uh, I think it was like within a week he died. Meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread, and there were many new believers. See that. Meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread, and there were many new believers. When Barnabas and Saul finished their mission to Jerusalem, they returned, taking John Mark with them. We won't cover too much on that. There's a lot there, but that is an action-packed chapter, is it not? And you can see in all of that, and maybe it's easier to see in some circumstances than others, God's supernatural sovereignty in the situation. You look at who's in control. Is Peter in control? No, not so much. Is Herod in control? No, not really. James obviously wasn't in control. Were the believers in control? It didn't seem to be. It seemed to be that they were surprised. And so there is this idea of God's sovereignty, God's control. And so what I want to talk about today are five ways to show that you believe God is in control. And you may say... Uh, 
Again, I wrestle with that. Then I would encourage you to take these as five ways to practice trusting that God is in control. And this is something that applies to all of us because I don't know your situation in life right now or your circumstances, but we all go through times when things are confusing, things in our country are confusing, things in your own personal life, your immediate family, your extended family, your neighborhoods, your jobs are confusing. And at at the bottom of it, we want to know that we can trust God in the middle of this big confusing mess. And so it's important for us to be able to begin to at least practice some ways to trust God or to show that we believe. And so the first one is, one is count the cost. You're like, oh, that's not a very exciting one. That sounds miserable. And, and so as we talked about this, I'm going to talk about Peter and you talk about James. I mean, they both, I, I can't imagine that the church was not also praying for James. I don't, you know, and we, we see this amazing miracle with Peter, and it's, it's beautiful, it's powerful. In fact, we want to say, that's what God does, and that is what God does. But God also allowed James to die by the sword. And so the idea here is that they probably could have both recanted, I would imagine, and saved their lives. James could have probably said, you know what, this was just a big thing. I was riding a big hype wave. You're right. You know, I don't know about this Jesus thing. Uh, It's going to cost me a life. I sure don't. But he was willing to go to his death. Peter, it appears, was willing to go to his death. They counted the cost. They, they thought about and they entrusted themselves to his plan, whether good, whether bad, for either one of them. And I'll say this, that I believe that you know, the, the reality is that he is in complete control. And the details of each one of our lives may be different, and the but our purpose, I'll say like this, but our purpose is the same. In other words, the details of my life, I may not make it to 50. That may be in the, the plan. God say, may say you don't make it to 50. Some of you say you look like you've been to 50 and back a couple times. I don't know, but the reality is I'm not there yet for a few more months. But I may not, I may not make it to 50. That may be one of the details that are different than your plan. God may have your plan to make it past 100. But God's purpose for us are the same. So the details in our lives may not be the same, but God's purpose is the same. The details for James played out a heck of a lot different than the details for Peter. And I say this because we can't orchestrate and know what every detail is, but we do know the purpose that we've been called to. And so to show and to demonstrate, God, I trust you. I trust you as ruler, I trust you as king, is to say, whatever comes my way, I'm going to stick with the purpose that you gave me. And so if you want to be able to show that you believe God's in control no matter what, then part of that, I think, is accepting and counting the cost, accepting whatever cost that means to let him be your Lord. And so the opposite of that would be, I'm the ruler, I'm the boss, I'm going to make sure I don't suffer, I'm going to make sure and avoid pain, I'm going to get in here and figure out what I can do to to rearrange all these circumstances. And I think there's a place for that. But if we want to show that we trust God, then part of that is that we have to be willing to accept 
whatever that means, even if it means suffering. For most of us in here, the reality is probably, maybe our kids, but probably, I don't know if America there will be outright persecution. I don't know. Who knows? But I do know this, that if he's our king and he tells us to do something, sometimes it just feels like suffering having to deny yourself. Doesn't it? And so if we want to recognize he's in control, I'm going to live life God's way, it may mean that you have to die to your flesh, die to yourself, count some cost. Because either God's the boss or he's not. And for you individually, it comes down to, are you going to let God be the boss or are you going to try and be the boss? If you're going to let God be the boss, you need to accept whatever comes with that, following his plan. So that's one way I believe is by counting the cost and saying, I don't know what the details are for me, but I'm going to follow the purpose you gave me. And we can see that in James and in Peter. Next, I think if we want to show that we believe God's in control, we continue to pray. And, you know, as we looked at that passage, I think you kind of go at their surprise, and they're kind of surprised and going, I think Peter was surprised that he was released. I think the church members were surprised at the release. And you think, why would they be surprised if they were praying for that? And I don't really know if that's good or bad, or, but I think it's really relatable. <laughs> I think we can all relate to that, praying for something and not being maybe fully, fully convinced the way we should and not having the faith we should, but continuing to pray anyways. And if you say, well, if God's in control, again, we get back to these philosophical arguments, then why even pray about it? Why should I pray if God's going to do what he's going to do anyways? Well, the first reason would be because God tells us to pray. And if he's the boss, we should do what he says. So first and foremost, pray because God tells you to pray. I would say a second big reason, if you need a reason beyond God told me to, uh, would be it helps us become aligned to God's plan and get on track to God's plan. I talked to a guy this week, and it was actually two weeks ago, struggling with some things with his boss and whatnot. And uh, it was almost to the point of becoming a fist fighty kind of situation. And so I told him, hey, why don't you start praying for that guy? You know, and we kind of went through all these arguments about why, why that's a stupid idea, but it really wasn't. Uh, but anyways, it is, he told me a few days later, everything changed after he started praying for that guy. Now, I don't think that guy transformed into a whole different person, but I do think my friend had a transformed heart through prayer. And I think through these kind of situations, whether you're a James or whether you're a Peter or whether you're the church members, we can begin praying because it helps us to be ready to be on God's plan and to show we want what you have for us. And it shows, and, and I believe God answers prayer with yeses, noes, or hold on, or wait. I believe God will answer our prayer. I don't believe he ignores our prayers. And so as we can see, these guys, uh, they were praying. And I think part of it, too, is we've got to be careful not to trust. I've heard it said, you know, don't trust in your own prayers. You're trusting in God. We're not trusting in our, in our prayers. I believe they were praying for James, even though things didn't unfold for James the way he wanted them to. But we should be people of prayers because it shows that we trust that God's in control, right? 
If I'm praying, what's the opposite of praying? Worrying, meddling, controlling, fearing, taking charge, all those things. Despairing. All those things are the opposite of prayer. And so when life throws you a curveball and you're trying to go, I don't know what's going on uh, with so-and-so's health. I don't know what's going on with my job. I don't know what's going on in my marriage. I don't know what's going on with my kid. I don't know what's going on in this situation. It shows that we trust God by going, I'm coming to you as the authority who does know what's going on. And I want to pray. So one is we need to count the cost. Two, we need to continue to pray. If we believe that God is in control, we show him that when we come to him in prayer. And again, the opposite of that would be to try and take control yourself, to say, I'm not trusting you. Uh, I'm ignoring you in this. Doesn't mean our prayers are always going to go be answered the way we want them to be answered. Another way is to consider his supernatural power. Another way to show that you trust God is to consider his supernatural power. Another reason to pray, too. Uh, I mean, we can see in, in this passage, it's really obvious. Is God's supernatural power obvious in Peter's escape? Is God's supernatural power obvious in Herod's death? It's obvious. I mean, no one's going to doubt his rulership there. Is God's supernatural power obvious in James's death? It's a little harder to see, isn't it? It's a little harder to see God's supernatural power working. But I'll tell you this, he's no less able within that situation with James than he was with Peter. God was not taking a nap. God didn't forget about James. God didn't get, wasn't worn out from the day before. And that's why James died and Peter didn't. He had this big bolt of energy. God's power and ability does not change. And so part of how it's showing we trust him is by believing that he can do the supernatural in our lives. We should pray and believe in the power, knowing the power of God. And I know I'm guilty of it, and sometimes I'll pray in the back of my mind. I'm not thinking about God's supernatural power, and I'm like putting so many disclaimers on my prayer. It's probably offensive and insulting to God. If it's your will, I know that there's a this and ba pa but what about that? We are told to pray if it's his will. But I don't think we should back away from what God can do. I think that we should be people who go, you know what? God can heal this person in my family. God can provide reconciliation in my marriage. It seems so far gone, but God can bring it back. I mean, we have all know people. I... I have family members, I have friends, parents divorce and then remarry. God can do those kind of miracles. When we believe in a financial bind that's hitting us and we believe God can make a way here, God can do this. And I believe that as we show that, we demonstrate if the opposite. So if we do that and we show God, I believe you can do something miraculous here. Does that show that we trust that he is ruling, that he is in control, that he is in charge? Now, does it when we doubt? Or what's the opposite? We make excuses? Or we have little hope? And we're like, eh, probably, probably this is just going to end crappy like everything else ends crappy. That's not showing and demonstrating that we believe 
the power that God has. We should start out there in our prayers, in our attitudes. And I would, I would, I would say this. Dream, think big when it comes to what God can do for you. Don't demand big, but dream, think, ask big. We have no right to demand that of God. But at the same time, we should be asking and praying with hope in a supernatural God. I mean, his ways are beyond ours. Count on his righteous judgment. So you want to be able to trust that God's in control and show that you trust that God's in control. Herod's judgment was pretty quick, very public, right? Everybody knew about it. It's written down in the history books. Unfortunately, God's judgment and discipline does not always work that way. Sometimes it's behind the scenes. Sometimes I think it'll take place after this life in some way, shape, or form. But we trust, when we show that we trust God's judgment against those who've hurt us, against those who've hurt those we love, against those who are doing wrong in the world, against those in our society, in our government, and we're confused, and some of it we don't even know what's going on. But when we say we trust God's going to sort this all out, it shows that we trust that he's in control. And some of us, we don't want to trust that. And so instead of leaving vengeance to God, we put take it on ourselves. Instead of forgiving somebody, we have a list of things that we're going to hold against that person till the day they die. Rather than, and there's so much freedom. And in just in doing this, it actually brings freedom, joy, and peace to us if we will hand over judgment to God. It's not your job to exact judgment on your neighbors, on your friends, on your family, on your ex-wife, on your whoever. It's not your or my job to do that. Giving the cold shoulder to so-and-so because they've done this or that wrong, and that might be a minor way of exacting judgment. Well, we'll see if, how they like this. That's not your job. It's not my job. Let's trust God to be the one and hand judgment over to him to take care of. That's a way for us to show. And, you know, and I would say this would even, <clears throat> it's a way to show that we trust him. I would say even trying to change or fix somebody. I mean, they weren't coming together having a, an intervention for Herod over there, right? They didn't get everybody together to try and fix Herod, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in each other's lives, but the reality is sometimes we're not trusting God to take care of things if we're trying to get in there so so fast and so furious and fix this person and change this person. No, let God have his work in people. That shows that we trust him and trust his work. And if a friend that you have is failing in an area morally or whatever it may be, diving into sin and won't get out, man, that can be exhausting and it can be draining. And I don't mean that you're just waiting for God's judgment and God to smile, oh, God, I can't wait for you to smack them down. No, we want to see them rescued from that. But if we would also at the same time realize, I am not in control here. I can pray for this person. I can support this person. I can encourage this person. But at the same time, I don't have to make this person my project. I, have to, I don't have to get myself worked into a tizzy over this person. I can count on God's righteous judgment and God's working of what's right in other people's lives. That's a way to show I trust God. Isn't that a practical way to show it? 
All right, last one for today here. Confidently rest in the unfolding of his plan. So it said there in a short little verse there at the very end, it said, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Man, I'll tell you what, if you were James's sister or aunt or mom and you were looking right at that situation, you might have looked at that and be thinking, this is the biggest mess that's ever, that's ever come down the, uh, the pike here. But if you take a step back and begin to see how God fits all the pieces together to the perfect unfolding of his plan, and as we know the story from God's word, as that it's a redemption story from beginning to end, and that he will straighten everything out, and in the end, we do know who ends up winning and we do know who ends up right. And so God's unfolding of God's big plan is not always obvious in the small, immediate details. And so I think as if they were seeing this, and, and you'd think, for us, it's easy. We read a chapter, and we catch this whole big view. We catch this view of Herod being uh, judged. We catch this view of Peter escaping. We see what's going on. That the church grew, we realize that. But when you're, if you were in the middle of this chapter, the thing would be like, we need to get everybody together to revolt against the government. Look what's going on. We need to do this. We need to do that. Maybe we're, maybe we're off track. Maybe God is not with us. Maybe you can imagine all the doubts, all the fears, all the confusion. But if we'll begin to step back and begin to go, I'm going to rest knowing that God has a good and right plan unfolding. All the details, there may be a lot of difficulty. There will be hardship. There will be pain. But the big picture, God's redemptive plan is unfolding. No matter what goes wrong in our country, God's plan is unfolding, and it's right, and it's good. It may mean difficulty for us, but one of the things that would sustain us through difficulty is knowing that God has a bigger plan. That's part of what sustains people in those times of difficulty, if you're in tough circumstances, step back and go, God has a bigger plan, a bigger thing going on here. It helps you to, one, trust God more, and two, have strength to continue on. And so, let me just go through these really quickly. You want to be showing God that you trust Him, or you want to practice, you're like, I'm not trusting so much, what can I do? One, count the cost. Begin to go, God, you're the boss. Whatever the consequences are of following you, I'm in because I know you're the king. I'm not the king. You're the king. I'm going to do things your way regardless of what it costs. Two, I'm going to continue to pray even when it doesn't make sense, even when I'm confused, even when I'm not really sure what exactly to pray about. I'm going to continue to pray by going to you in prayer. I show that you're in charge. You're the one running things, not me. Next, I want to consider your supernatural power, God, and that you can do big things in this situation, in this mess, in our country, in my family, in my life, in my body. You can do big things. I'm going to realize that you can do big things. I'm not going to demand that you do big things for me, but I am going to recognize the fact that you can do something big and dynamic and supernatural in my life because you are a supernatural supernaturally sovereign God who often surprises people. Do you think they were surprised in this chapter? Next, count on his righteous judgment. Whether it's somebody who's wronged you, whether it's somebody you've never met, whether it's somebody in the government, but trust that God 
has his hand on everything, and he will execute perfect judgment. All through Scripture, he is called a judge. Confidently rest in the unfolding of his plan. No matter what it looks like, no, don't get too, too focused on the immediate circumstances. Realize that God has a plan that's unfolding. Isaiah 58, I'm sorry, 55, 8, 9 says this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are, this is God talking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And the reality is, God is sovereign. We're small. We get confused. We don't see the big picture. We get discouraged. But God is still ruling. God is always good. We can trust him. And some of these things that we gave here are ways that you can practically trust. And so I would just even encourage you today, what do I need to trust him with? You know the things that are going on in your life that are confusing, that cause you the most pain, the most doubt, the most frustration, maybe even fears for the future about your kids or whatever it may be or your finances. You know what those things are. Well, you can begin to practice even some of these things. Go back today maybe and just scan that list and go, I'm going to start praying about this more. You know what? I'm going to start believing that God can do a miracle here in this situation. That's what I need to do. I need to start believing. I've kind of lost hope that God could do a miracle. I'm going to begin believing that. Maybe you're suffering for something righteous, and you need to realize this is part of doing things God's way. I don't like dying to my flesh, but God is king, and I'm going to do things his way. So I'd encourage you to do that, and Jordan and Carly are going to come up, and, and I would just encourage you as we close in this last song to let him be the king of your heart this week. He is king, but are you going to live with him as the king of your heart? <clears throat> I would encourage you as we sing this last song that you would kind of make a commitment, and, and again, not to be too worried about doing everything perfectly, but to live intentionally with Christ as your king this week, letting him be your ruler this week.